Hello, I'm Shankar. And I'm Nikhil. This is Chai Across Generations. This is episode 27, Me or We, Navigating Privacy, My Room and My Phone. Well, Nikhil, we kicked off our series on individualism versus collectivism last week. We talked about some of our experiences growing up in individual or collective spaces, and we started pondering how it affects our identity. Yeah, if you haven't listened to part one and didn't hear Shankar's story about his family all sleeping in one room before they moved out to Delhi, you can go back and check out episode 26. And even if you haven't heard that episode, you can also just jump into this conversation since it covers different topics related to individual versus collective space. Absolutely. On today's episode, we'll chat about some of the pros and cons of growing up in individual or collective spaces as we see them between South Asia and America. And I'm excited for this, Shankar. We'll also dive into the idea of private space and how we navigate privacy between generations, which is something one of our listeners had brought up in an earlier episode when she was talking about her relationship with her daughter. Yeah, we owe one to Ramanila Kanta for suggesting this topic. And so we'll come back at the end to wrap things up. Here we go. Coming back to something you said earlier about the perception in a South Asian community. Mm-hmm or in South Asia, of, oh, America is a certain way. America is individualist. Everyone's living in their own houses. Everyone is off doing their own thing, looking after their own thing. And there's huge economic wealth, Mm -hmm. you know, social mobility. It's viewed as America's great opportunity in a lot of ways, but you give up Mm -hmm. this, you have to adopt this individual mindset in order to make it there. And that's a bit of a loss. Yeah. It's the way it's framed. Mm -hmm. But here we're, we're more collectivist. We look out for one another. Uh, One thing I would say there, in my experience, the looking out for each other happens more at a family level Mm -hmm. than at a a societal level. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was once I was at EA Mall in Chennai, Mm -hmm. and I went to order some food or something in the food court. And I was like, I I got my food, I was coming to sit down, Mm -hmm. and I noticed there were no places to sit. Not because people were actually eating at the tables. Mm. But because one person in every family had already claimed right. one table, the ta- one table. Wow. no one was eating. Like 20% right. of the people were eating. 80% of the people were just holding the space for right. their families right. and hence creating a very inefficient yeah. you know, communal space. Right. Because yeah. then people are milling around looking for tables. Yeah. People are ordering and the, we can't really switch spots between yeah. the two. Yeah. And I was just thinking, if we looked around here, we yeah. would say, you know what, maybe we need to release some tables so people can actually... Yeah. So people who have food can sit down and then we can start to trade places. Right. Um, but everyone was looking out for their family. Yeah. I've actually been to places in the U.S. where there is a community table mm. at many cafes and stuff. It's just expected that if you sit at that table, you're open to meeting other people. Just come and share your space. That's cool. Yeah. So that's interesting, too. You think that would happen in South Asia? I don't know. From what I know right now, at least the South Asia that I knew growing up, there are still pretty strong... Um, sense of family, community, um, which may not broadly extend across all society. I think it's changing in the urban areas to a good extent, and I think much of that is positive, Mm -hmm. but I'm not so sure that it extends all the way to all the rural areas. I may be wrong. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It also makes me think of of driving in India or in South Asia, Mm -hmm. because... And you could argue this this isn't 
unique to South Asia, but mm-hmm. you're looking out for the well-being of the people in your car. Mm-hmm. The road rules don't really exist, yes. right? Yes. If you need to pass, you're going to pass. Yeah. And you're going to try to do it in a way that's safe for you. It might hinder other people. It might yeah. cause more traffic. It doesn't matter. And you're going to be on both ends of that. You're going to yeah. benefit from that, right. and you're going to suffer from that. Right. Whereas in a place like America, we have much clearer road rules. Yeah. It's easier to adapt to driving here, in my opinion. Right. Right. Uh, so that's another area where sometimes I feel like when I was on the road in India, you'd think, if we could all just align to just wait yeah. and not just try to pass every yeah. open opportunity, we would all get to our destination exactly. faster. Exactly. That's an individualist behavior. Right. right? That's true, actually. Right. I never thought about that. Yeah. Or do you think of the civic duty of cleanliness? Mm-hmm. How many times have you seen people cleaning out their house and throwing the trash right over yeah. outside, on yeah. just outside the wall? Right. Into a common space. Yeah. With complete disregard hmm. for collectivist cleanliness. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. I'd say both of those behaviors, the road decorum right. and the tra- tossing of trash, right. if you start from a single person perspective, mm-hmm. you're, that's a collectivist action. You're looking out for your family or you're, provide, you're taking care of the family needs. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it from a family perspective, you're, it's an individual it's family right. and you're disregarding the broader social collective. That's a good point. It's really interesting. Yeah. I never, I'd never thought about those actions as individualist. Right. But you're right, you know, they're, it's for an individual family or yeah. unit yeah. and kind of not in the service of the larger collective. Right. On the other hand, I don't know, is there, I think there is some theory that says that all this thinking is somehow tribal and you define what your tribe is mm. and, you know, you watch out for your tribe. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know if we, I mean, let's take America for an example. If people think of America as a nation, are we really think of ourselves as a tribe, I think it kind of breaks down. What we're seeing right. in everyday evidence is that nobody thinks of America as encompassing all the inhabitants of this country. Mm-hmm. Right? In fact, probably we're at a position where we are farthest from that notion right now. Right. It is so tribal here. Mm. You know, The political yeah. and the partisan nature of debate is horrendously tribal, won't you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe there is some truth to the fact that we're all tribal. Right. It's just how you define your tribe. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe how we get to individual or collective is how we define what an individual unit is. Right. Or an individual tribe is. Because mm-hmm. uh, depending on how you define that, you could define the same thing as either individual or collective. Right. Uh, or tribal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. The other aspect I wonder is uh, the available resources to the community. And I wonder how that shapes... So, for instance, if you have abundant or, let's say, infinite resources for the entire collective, right, then there should be, one would logically think that all tribalism should go to zero and you should have no problem Mm -hmm. thinking about the collective. Mm -hmm. But the moment you constrain the resources, I think your tendency to be more tribal or individual is going to increase, right? Yes, yeah. And in that sense, maybe what our implicit expectation is that if you consider the amount of material wealth and the GDP of the two countries, you may expect that a more wealthy country should encourage a more collectivist mindset because resources are less limited. Mm-hmm. Wait, let me think about that. Say that last part again. So I'm just saying, if you're a richer, uh, say, a richer island, yeah, um, 
you would think that you can afford to be more think more collectivist. Oh yes, yes, yeah. Whereas if very constrained resources, you're going to think more individualist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And maybe we need to normalize these behaviors by the total material wealth available mm. in different spaces. Right, right. What would that look like? I don't know. You have to figure out a formula, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. But also, there's a piece of it around the inequality, mm-hmm. social or yeah. social or wealth inequality within a country, right? Right. Even if there's greater. That's right. right? Even if the overall wealth is greater, exactly. the inequality is still much. Ho- I think it's higher in the U.S. Than I think so. I'd imagine so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's that too. The wealthy, the wealthiest, you know, maybe more right. prone to look after themselves. So I have a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. So how does the uh, this discussion affect uh, generational um, notions of That's individual versus collective? It's a great question. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I feel like individual versus collective is more of a cultural force. Mm-hmm. Does it vary by generation? I would say, to some extent, yes. Mm-hmm. But I think it might be more cultural than generational. Really? I think so. What do you think? I think you're right. But why I, why I bring that up is because, you know, I'm a first-generation immigrant. Mm. And you're second-generation. More or less, yeah, yeah. Right? And so I think that um, uh, those, those perceptions do come into conflict uh, in the generational interaction mm. for immigrant families. Yeah, so for instance, uh, I'm thinking about my grandparents' generation in India, and I think it was very the collectivist um, notion in the sense of family and community was very high. And then coming to um, my parents' generation, uh, my father moved, as I said, to the uh, out from Tamil Nadu to the north, uh, but his brother stayed in uh, Tamil Nadu. And I think the um, my uncle's uh, family still kept up those more, or they were able to hmm. keep mm-hmm. up those more collectivist notions because there was more of the family and community, extended family and community around. Whereas those who left the, you know, the home state uh, were, uh, you know, perforce or in other ways, you know, changing towards a little more nuclear family right and then if I think of then the generation um, and my generation came here uh, I think there's been a a transition to you know definitely a more individualistic way of living but then if I look at uh, your generation so you know say by the children of the first generation they've all grown up in typically you know isolated spaces having their own space yeah. And again, we do acknowledge that uh, different individuals are placed differently on that uh, spectrum, on the distribution. But I wonder if, um, broadly speaking, the first generation values a certain collectivist ideal still hmm. in the notion of family and community more on average, whereas the second generation, um, again, like we said, by, by the uh, consequence of having grown up in more private spaces um, and also growing up in a culture that externally in the, on the outside also values individualism to a greater degree uh, has this kind of little bit of a value shift mm-hmm. and whether that is a source of um, 
can or can be a source and not for all individuals but but maybe in a broader sense uh, of conflict or disagreement mm. uh, on that scale not saying everyone but right yeah. i think you're right mm-hmm. i would say the overall sensibility is similar mm-hmm. across generations but you're right that your generation probably has a greater tie to collectivist ideas than the children of your generation, mm-hmm. my generation, around private space, mm-hmm. you know, sense of individualism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, when you're growing up in the West, mm-hmm. it definitely changes it. We might be a little bit further on the scale mm-hmm. between individual and collective toward individual, right, right than your generation. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to mention is a lot of this is predicated on time, or rather predicated on I guess the resources available to your point. Because mm-hmm. even now, when I go back to India, mm-hmm. the, things have changed right. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a middle class family 30, 40 years ago was still sleeping in the same room. Right. That still is the case in some parts of India, but largely speaking, a middle class family now has individual rooms. Yes, I think that's very interesting. So if you actually track the same generation in the two countries, there is also a difference. Right. So in fact, when you talk to your cousin, yeah. In India, you then can track the maybe the cultural difference, but uh, it subtracts the generational difference. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that cousin I was mentioning from earlier, he now has his own room. Right. But growing up, he didn't, and so you know he's he was socialized in a certain way, right. uh, but now gets to experience something different. Yeah. Whereas his kids mm-hmm. will experience something probably more akin to what I experienced here. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of interesting too, huh? Right. Yeah. Right, right. Like it, it's generationally different, mm-hmm. but it's not like, okay, when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, you will morph to think this way. It mm-hmm. is because you had certain experiences when you were younger. Mm-hmm. The generation that's now 40, 50, 60 grew up in a certain way, mm-hmm. which has informed their thinking. Right. So when my generation gets to 40, 50, 60, or when the next generation gets to 40, 50, 60, their ideas of individualism versus collectivism is going to be based on a lot of what they experienced when they were younger. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. Hmm. So the so starting point matters a lot. The formative experiences. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. And since those formative experiences are vastly different mm-hmm. for first-generation immigrants now living in the U.S. versus second-generation yeah. immigrants now living in the U.S. So there's a variety of studies we could do. Yeah. We could think of 40, 50-year-olds yeah. in two different countries, or you could look across... Uh, yeah. Yeah. How do you see these differences playing out between our generations? So I'm, I still have a very hopeful view of this when I look at it in a, through a rosy lens, which is, honestly, when you take any of these cultural dimensions, and I, one interesting exercise, and particularly because I'm a coach, I try to see the value of, if I drag that to any one extreme, what is the benefit from that? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a benefit from both perspectives. I don't think anyone is an unalloyed good, right? And so removing the value judgment from that uh, mental picture helps me because naturally, you know, their clients are going to come with different um, sort of, uh, with a different setting on that scale, right? And yet there's value in in everyone's perspective. So perhaps what I would say is that if we come 
if the first generation values collectivism um, on an average more, then there's, there's a value in trying to explain that, but also seeing the point that there's also a value to individualism because otherwise many times, you know, people may not have even had the, that success in their personal lives that they so yeah. uh, cherish and are so proud of right. without that aspect. So I think it's a, it's a tricky one. Right. It also kind of loops back to, you know, one of our listeners had mentioned uh, in their feedback about uh, bringing up this topic of private space yes. and how uh, she had conversations with her daughter and she's had to learn to listen more carefully and uh, know when her daughter does not want advice and also being very sensitive to this idea of private space. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've talked mostly about physical space, but you opened up my eyes that there may be other ways in which there's yes. a sense of privacy. So could you want, want to talk about that? Yeah, I think we could definitely dive into this idea of private space because I think that is different between generations. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a source of some tension potentially mm -hmm. between generations. I think there's uh, physical space in the mm -hmm. sense of do you have your own bedroom? Are you sharing bedrooms, as mm -hmm. we've talked about? Mm -hmm. um, do you have your own car or, or not once yeah. you hit a certain age? Mm -hmm. Even space in the house, space to work, like you said, space to read a book or play your guitar. Mm -hmm. Th those are forms of physical space. There's now digital space, too. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't thought of that, honestly. Yeah, and I'll be curious to hear maybe how you and your daughter navigate this, if at all. Mm -hmm. But with the advent of social media, you have generations who get onto Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, mm -hmm. TikTok. Mm -hmm. Should their parents be allowed to see what's on there? Like, is it an expectation that your parents are going to be your friends on Facebook or Instagram? I have heard that children don't want their parents to friend them on Facebook. I'd say that's largely right, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I kind of dodged this bullet because... <laughs> I had the most clunky Facebook page, mm. which was created for me by someone at work. Right. Because at that point, I was uh, leading up uh, an organization called Women in Mechanical Engineering. Mm. And they thought that I should have a Facebook presence. Right. But I never logged into that page ever okay. after that. Or maybe very sporadically. And so I never ran into those issues. But I know there is this whole other world, mm -hmm. which um, your generation inhabits. Uh, and now I'm on Instagram, by the way, since yeah. I'm a child across generations. Shout I, out to follow Shankar on Instagram, but please continue. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, I realize I'm breaking several of those rules because I don't check often enough. Right. And so I don't follow back. I learned recently that you're, you're supposed to follow back. I, I didn't know this stuff. <laughs> yes. Generally, yeah, the idea is someone follows you, you want to follow them back. Otherwise, it's rude. Yeah. This is the rules of the road. I didn't know yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Although, I mean, I, I've, I, there are times where either I have not followed back or someone else has not followed back with I mean, me. Yeah, I follow Michelle Obama and she never followed me back. <laughs> yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> well, maybe if she hears this podcast, maybe she'll give you a follow. I know. Yeah, exactly. I hope she listens to it. Maybe one of our listeners can, you know, Put in get a this up to the higher ranks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, that's a, that's a whole new territory. And so, to be honest, to be to be very fair, yeah, I'm I'm a complete novice in that yeah. regard. So I'll defer to your. Why don't you tell our listeners the, you know? Yeah. The, well, I'll say too within our within my generation, mm -hmm. I think there are multiple views on this. Okay. I don't think it's steadfast that it's your parents cannot follow you mm -hmm. on a social platform. It really depends on the child and and the parent. Mm -hmm. But I think generally. If you know your parents are following you on mm. these social platforms, you're going to post differently. Oh. And the other thing you have to worry about mm -hmm. is tagging. 
Oh, okay. So on, on Facebook and Facebook, Instagram, right. as examples, you get tagged in photos, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which then show up on your profile. Oh, okay. I didn't know this. Yeah. So okay. I think now you have to accept the tags, but there was a time when if someone tags you in a photo, mm-hmm. it shows up on your profile. Your parents go to check your profile. Oh. They might see you doing something that your parents didn't know you were doing. Oh, okay. So be very careful about photos you're in, right. right? And all this stuff. Wow. Especially if you know your parents are on your profile. Right. I do think it can be totally fine for right. parents and kids to be friends on Facebook, especially as they get older. I don't think there's much, right. you know, danger there, right. really. Well, maybe right. there can be if you're doing things they don't know you're doing, right? Right. right? It can be an unexpected source of information. Got it. Essentially, right? Got it. And I know growing up, I was very careful about what went on my yeah. Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Um, even in, I don't think I was doing anything super wild, but just the sense of, oh, I know if this type of photo landed on mm-hmm. my page, maybe my parents would have questions for me. Yeah, yeah. Or they'd be like, what's going on here? And I just, either I wouldn't want to explain or it was just kind of like yeah. information that I just didn't want out there with them. I get it yeah. uh, in a different sense. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think in all, even in our generation, we didn't have social media at all. I didn't. Right, right. So, but there were obviously many things I didn't want my parents to know. Right. And so, you know, either you were geographically separated enough, or you make sure, right, that right. there's that separate space. Right? Yeah. But I think it just boggles the mind that they call it social media. So it yeah. For public consumption. <laughs> right. And yet, uh, of course, not all public, and particularly not your parents in some cases. Yeah. We also have to be careful about the perils of social media mm-hmm. and parental controls on social media. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, it can be helpful for parents to have some visibility into child accounts, especially at younger and younger ages, right, right. because there can be some really awful things on the internet, yeah. from bullying to potentially emotional abuse or other things, right. right? And so, in that case, I can totally see parents wanting to say, "I want to have, I want to at least be able to see," yeah. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm empathetic to that too. Right. That's nice. Right. Uh, and so I don't think it's hard and fast to say parents should never be on, but you have to negotiate that yeah. that space, that mm-hmm. private space co- concept mm-hmm. gets dimensionalized, not just physically, yeah, <laughs> but digitally, yeah. right? Um, I don't know what the right answer is, to be honest with you. That's fascinating. And I think it's an interesting... Mm, I think it's an interesting question. At, at, and, and maybe the... Uh, maybe the problem or the conundrum has existed for all time. It's right. just that the dimensions on which we are now forced to confront it right. are different. I, I think even in my mother's generation from the stories I remember her telling me, um, there was some tension between my grandfather and the books that uh, my mother's siblings used to read, even then. So hmm. I, I remember that he thought that some of those things were not novels appropriate. Oh, I see. For, for them. Right. And so there was, again, there's still this private space. <laughs> right. I, I, I still even remember the name of the book that she said. It says Forever Amber or something. Okay. So, so, you know, and and when he discovered that one of his daughters was reading it, he was, you know, not happy about it mm. and, and made it known in <laughs> no uncertain terms. But there's always been that thing. Like, it's a secret thing. They, yeah. You know, your kids are reading something. They don't want you to see it. So probably, you know, hiding yeah. it under the bed cover. Right, right. Exactly. The classic image of a kid reading under the bed covers right. yeah so there is that so i think um the growth of an individual and from from childhood through adolescence to an adult necessarily involves their exploring spaces which maybe they're not always comfortable 
sharing with their parents. Right. So that wraps up the second part of our conversation on individualism versus collectivism. What are you taking away from the conversation, Shankar? We covered a lot of ground in this episode, but I still think there's this big open question of where our boundary uh, as an identity group sits. Is it family or is it a broader sense of community? And what does that mean? Or is it a national identity? And how does all that relate to resource availability? Yeah, that's a great question, Shankar. I wonder how that changes over time or over generations, too. You may have come up with another topic we can dive into someday. (laughs) Sounds good. But what are you taking away, Nikhil? I'm making a link between last episode and this episode. How we grow up really affects how we see private space and privacy with other generations. I think recounting some of the shared family experiences that we did last episode... Help me better understand where my parents may have been coming from when we were navigating questions around privacy in terms of the physical space and social media when I was living at home in high school. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that we become familiar with uh, what we grew up with and that sort of becomes the default. And then we always judge everything we see later in life uh, in relation to that default standard and I also think that our perspective of the value of community changes as we age uh, because we do become more aware of our interdependence as we grow older of course it's hard Mm -hmm. to tease out what proportion of our attitudes come from generational differences and culture but I do think that we become more aware of our interdependence when we engage in larger projects also for instance if you build a house or organize a major event in your community. Yeah, I strongly co-sign that sentiment. As someone who recently bought a house, I can tell you all about painters and floor specialists and pest control professionals and how long it takes them to get everything in place. I had no idea what I was getting into. And speaking of diverse groups and community, we'd love to hear your perspective on growing up in individual or collective spaces, dear listeners. You can reach out to us on our Instagram page, Chai Across Generations, or our email at chaiacrossgenerations at gmail.com. As always, subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a rating on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This really, really helps new people find our show, and we want to thank you all for listening. See you all next time. <laughs>